And then the immunotherapy, what it does, it kind of revs up your own immune system. It, you know, removes that cloak from those cancers and allows your own immune system to attack those cells. Whereas chemotherapy is kind of like a, you know, like an all out bomb that attacks all cells, good and bad. Uh, ideally an immunotherapy attacks just those cancer cells, uh, allows your immune system to again, recognize those cells. If any of your listeners ever end up unfortunately diagnosed with cancer, they should ask that they get genetic sequencing on the tumor that they had, because we have so many more targeted treatments based on the mutations in the cancer itself now than we used to before. And you should be able to target some of those mutations with some of these new drugs that we have. And that's been a, also a pretty um, uh, important development in cancer treatments is this kind of idea of personalized medicine or personalized treatments based on your exact, not just type of cancer, but the genes that your cancer has. You're listening to the Addicted to Fitness podcast brought to you by Elemental Training Tampa. Now, here's your hosts, Nick and Shannon Birch. Thanks for stopping by and checking out another edition of the Addicted to Fitness podcast. We have a, I sometimes I say our episodes are informative, but this episode may be the most informative episode ever. Whoa. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really, uh, uh, I know, I know I'm uh, putting up a high bar, but I'm really proud of this episode. Um, this episode, we actually talked to a legit doctor. Uh um, one of those who happens to be also a client of mine. Um, he's a doctor of oncology and hematology, uh, Dr. Saban Shah. Um, and he was very gracious enough to come on the Addictive Fitness podcast and share his, uh, basically expertise about, um, cancer and everything that is involved in cancer. So wow. we're going to get into that. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening this week and every week. I know I mentioned it last week, but uh, September of 2023 was was one of our most, it was the month with the most downloads that we've had, I think, since 2019. Cool. So we've had a, a lot of people, hopefully a lot of new listeners, a lot of downloads. So welcome to all those new listeners. And if you are a new listener and you haven't given us a rating review yet in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app, please do so. That really does help us helps us uh helps more people discover the addic- uh, discover the addicted to fitness podcast. So, if you haven't done so, please do so. And if you haven't done if you haven't followed us on Instagram at the ATF podcast, please do so also because we uh, put a little extra content on there for you guys. Uh and it's a great way for you to uh get in contact with us. You can always send us a DM about, you know, what you like about the podcast or what you want to hear us talk about on a future podcast. So, we're not going to do any training recaps this week, not going to do what's got us pumped because this episode uh, with Dr. Salman Shah is full of great info. I don't want to basically uh, step on it anymore. Um, so without further ado, please enjoy this cancer FAQ with hematologist and oncologist Dr. Salman Shah. My guest today is a hematologist and oncologist at Florida Cancer Specialist. I'm very excited to have my friend, my client, Savan Shah on the Addicted to Fitness podcast today. How are we doing, Savan? Pretty good. Thanks. Thanks for having me today. Uh, I'm very excited. We I, This was actually, I will give you full credit for this. You had this idea about doing maybe a cancer FAQ 
uh, here on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I recently had a close, close family member who was uh, diagnosed with cancer. So I thought, uh, you know, obviously talking with you about that, and that kind of elicited uh, the idea from you, which I thought was great. Um, so I want you to kind of share with our listeners what your background is, both professionally and educationally, about how you got to uh, your current position. Yeah, so um, I did my undergrad at Emory University in Atlanta. And then uh, for medical school, I went to Tulane in New Orleans. And then after medical school, you do a residency. Uh, you know, typically it's in various different fields. Mine was in internal medicine. And I came back uh, to Tampa to do that at University of South Florida, where we worked at USF, TGH, Moffitt, and the VA. Um, during residency, you know, you can also subspecialize into other fields as well. And uh, oncology was pretty interesting to me. I had done some research in residency, mostly in kidney cancer, as well as some uh, leukemias, uh, and specifically one called myelofibrosis. Um, and so then I applied for my fellowship, which is training after residency. And so I matched at uh, Moffitt Cancer Center, which is here in Tampa. It's another USF program. And I just wrapped that up in June, and I'm now starting as a full-time attending physician at Florida Cancer Specialist in Clearwater, Florida. And so um, even in residency. Yeah. I was just going to say, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but how long was that actually from beginning? I mean, when you didn't to undergrad at Emory, was that yeah. was the goal? Was that the ultimate goal or were you kind of just, you kind of figured it out as you went along? Yeah. So I actually went into undergrad as a political science major and I graduated with a political science major. Um, I was thinking about doing like a second major in biology once I realized I wanted to be pre-med, but there's a lot more credits than I wanted to deal with. So uh, basically a, a minor in biology was what I ended up doing. So uh -huh. um, uh, yeah. And then, so I did four years of undergrad, obviously. And then I took one year off. I did a year in Washington, DC as a, it's called an AmeriCorps member is a program called city year where I tutored and mentored kids in uh, inner city, Southeast DC. Um, so that was one year, then four years of medical school, and then three years of residency, one year as a chief resident, and uh, three years of fellowship. So seven, uh, four, 11, one, uh, 12, four, 16 years after high school. It was a long time. I don't think I counted that. Yeah. Time, but maybe it's just uh, I was that long. Say, yeah. Yeah, it's that long. You're doctor. Yeah, 16. You're not a mathematician. You're a doctor. We get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I have so, other people to do the calculations for me. Right. So I think from pre-med, it sounded like it was probably along with your fellowship and your residency, it was probably almost 12 yeah. years before where you're about to go into your position right, right now. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah. now, and so I know you were, I would cut you off a little bit about after you kind of got to the, got to where you are now. Um, what, what yep. are you kind of, where were you going to go from there? Yeah. So in fellowship, um, you know, most people still do a research. Um, some people further subspecialize into one or two types of cancers, you know, um, particularly if you want to work in an academic center like Moffitt or you think of MD Anderson or Memorial Sloan Kettering, those are all big cancer centers where most of the oncologists only do one or two diseases at most. Um, so uh, for me, I'm someone who, uh, you know, research was great and it was an important part of my training and I'm glad I got those skills, but 
Um, when you do a lot more research as an oncologist, you don't do as much. I mean, you do less patient care. You don't not do patient care, but instead of doing all five days a week of patient care, you might only do two days a week. But patient care is the thing I like most. And so I uh, made the decision to be a community, what we call a community oncologist, where mm. you're kind of more community and not attached to a big academic center. And so for me, obviously, everything, um, whoever comes to my office, I see them. So uh, we see everything. So it's it's definitely more challenging because cancer has a lot of advances and a lot of changes that are going on uh, constantly. Um, and we'll get into what some of those are. Um, but being able to keep up with that is definitely a challenge, but it's a challenge that, uh, you know, we embrace and, and, uh, we do to give the best care to our patients. Interesting. And like I said, we're going to get into all those specifics. I mean, I looked up a couple stats and it, it seems, and I mean, I'm sure there's, there, there are big political, I'm not sure there are big political campaigns, not political, but a uh, public campaign, excuse me, mm-hmm. about, you know, trying to combat cancer, whether it be with funding yeah. and research. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just uh, recent, I looked at stats uh, from both uh, CDC and American Cancer Society, Society. Uh, it said approximately 1.6 million new cases of cancer were diagnosed in 2020, and it was approximately uh, over 600,000 deaths in 2020. Um, now, I saw another website. I can't remember if it was American Cancer Society, um, but there they said, and I don't. I know this might be getting a little bit too, too, you know, far ahead. But uh, they said it looks right. like the trending. It would be trending down over the next two years, even though the numbers aren't coming in yet. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment? Or is that you think that the number of people to... dying from cancers are coming down? Is that what you're saying? According according to one a page yeah. of the American a Cancer Society, and that's and that's definitely true because we have um, so many better treatments now that are really uh, leading to cures. Um, mm-hmm. I think I, mean, I have to look at the exact data that you're looking at, but uh, the advent of what's called immunotherapy in, in cancer treatments has been pretty pretty dramatic. Um, uh, I think it was probably first used in melanoma, which is malignant mm-hmm. skin cancer. Um, this is a, you know, that's a disease that for a long time we had, you know, chemo was not effective in, in melanoma and there were some different treatments that were okay, but nothing that was that great. So when they develop immunotherapy or specifically what's called checkpoint inhibitors, uh, which allows your own immune system to attack the cancer, uh, we were seeing dramatic results and even cures in many cases. And so I think, you know, that in addition to some of the other targeted therapies and other things that we're coming up with uh, are definitely increasing cures and helping people live longer. Cancer is, you know, metastatic cancer oftentimes is historically thought of as a death sentence. You know, you might have a year or two to live, but now we're addressing a lot of these that used to be very aggressive cancers as like, well, you only have a few years to live as, well, this is a chronic condition now. Like we treat it like someone who might have high blood pressure or who might have something like um, like lupus or like an autoimmune condition. This is a long-term condition or it's a chronic health condition in, in a lot of these cases now. And how do we maintain that as long as possible? Well, that's, I mean, that's great news. And I, I think you kind of put a bunch of topics out there that I like to get more into. Can we kind of like go back a little bit? And I know, yeah, yeah. I don't even, I don't even know if this is something you can give a definition of, but what is, yeah. is there kind of an overarching definition of cancer and what it actually does in your body? Yeah. I know there's many different types, but is what, right. what does it kind of do to the body in general? 
So the body is normally undergoing, depending on you know which organ it is, it goes through growth and regeneration and then destruction of the cells. And it's done in a very coordinated matter. This is the blood cells in your body. This is you know all your organs that happens. But over time, what happens is uh, some of those cells in those organs or in your blood or in your bone marrow can develop a mutation, a genetic mutation. It's an accident. It happens. And usually your body has ways of taking care of that uh, mutation that might happen, make sure it gets isolated or that cell gets isolated and, you know, destroyed. But sometimes those mutations can accumulate and the cell loses signals um, to stop, uh, to lose the signals to stop growing and then ends up growing out of control. And so that's basically what a tumor is. It's an uncontrolled growth of an abnormal cell. So that's basically what it is. And then it can, you know, if it's in the blood, your blood gets packed with these leukemia cells or cancer cells. Uh, if it's in an organ, then the organ, you know, has a growth, uh, which you can see on a imaging like MRI or CAT scan. And that's basically what cancer is. Mm -hmm. So like I said, and then I know like we just kind of touched on the different types of where it's located yeah. in the body. Yeah. Now, like, and you kind of typed on like melanoma being the skin. Is there like a yeah. growth on the skin? So like, I know they all yeah, talk you about like, see, like different mold. color freckles. Exactly. Mold, yeah. Exactly. So if you're someone who spends a lot of time outdoors and, you know, well, we'll get into those, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it is. It's, um, you know, the other thing is, um, you were talking about like the incidents and you had really good data for that. The other thing that I think of cancer often is that it's generally a condition that's correlated with age. You know, there's a ninefold increase in cancers in people who are older than 65 compared to those who are younger than 65. Even though we all either know personally people younger than 65 who've had cancer, um, in general, it's increases with age, the risk. Mm -hmm. um, and then we were talking, you know, in terms of who is at most risk, and actually what's interesting, well, I don't know if it's interesting, but black women have actually the lowest risk of developing cancer, but also have the lowest five-year survival with cancer. Hmm. And then black men have the highest risk of developing cancer. Um, so there is some racial differences in, in cancer and, and how we approach it and the incidence. Um, and there's also survival differences as well uh, when you apply race to it. Whether that's directly related to race or socioeconomic, or I can't really tell for sure, but that's something that, you know, it's important we think about as well. So, I mean, especially in regards to that, is it now, are there different uh, types that affect different racial groups more so yeah. than others? I mean, obviously, I think, like, so. I think we'd, sorry, go, go ahead. Yeah. So I think prostate and black men is, is um I think there's higher incidence. Um, and then you'll also see in Asians, especially from Asia, there's some uh, increased uh, liver cancers and things like that. Um, Caucasians, you see a lot more skin cancers having, you know, lighter skin and increased yeah. risk of that. So yeah, there is some racial differences in cancers. Mm -hmm. So within, in regards to, and I know it, like I said, once again, there's all some very specific forms and types, and you've already talked about like leukemia and then tumors for the organs or, you know, the, the melanoma. Um, what about like symptoms? Are there overarching symptoms or is, I'm, I'm sure there's a variety yeah. of what, what is kind of synonymous sure. with cancer itself? You know, um, I would say that it's hard to say that there's an overarching, you know, I think in terms of blood cancers, lymphomas, leukemias, things like that, 
Typically, you see a lot of what's called constitutional symptoms. That's what we call them, or B symptoms, Mm -hmm. where you might have fevers, night sweats, unintentional weight loss. Um, uh, You might start developing some rashes and things like that. So it's, it's a broad spectrum. It kind of depends on it. But the solid tumor ones, there are some, you know, syndromes that you can see um, uh, that you might get, and it's depending on the cancer itself. But you, the most thing you'll probably see is pain uh, in solid tumors if there's a growth. Um, but sometimes you're asymptomatic and you have no idea. Um, I have right. a family friend recently uh, whose dad you know, actually had a family history of pancreatic cancer and he was enrolling in a clinical trial to see if he had any risk of pancreatic cancer, completely healthy, had no symptoms. And they do a CT as a part of this clinical trial and they found, you know, a large five, six centimeter pancreatic tumor. So mm. pancreatic cancer definitely is one of those that, you know, it's, it's pretty, unfortunately pretty deadly, but it's one that we often don't catch until it's, pretty large and far out just kind of where the location of the pancreas is in the body deep inside the abdominal cavity. So, so, I mean, it kind of, obviously this individual was, uh, you know, participant in a clinical trial. Yeah. Um, and you just, if he wasn't in that trial, it, he would have not known, you know, so right. that, that's so, the hard part of cancer sometimes. Right. And I guess the kind of, the, some one way to, somewhat combat that is screenings yeah screenings and and so i mean that's another thing another topic i wanted to get into because um you kind of just illustrated that it's just those the importance of them in order to uh prevent you know either sudden death or kind of unexpected uh illnesses so what's uh how how are those done what when are they done i know we gotta uh, i'm gonna ask a kind of more specific question that one of our listeners gave so uh let's talk about screenings well why don't you give me that question first and i'll see if i okay in here all right. So like one of our listeners, Armando, uh, we put this out on the ATF, uh, yeah. the ATF podcast, Instagram, um, yeah. and to elicit questions for you. And, uh, Armando asked, he said, uh, what types of screenings should someone who's younger, uh, receive? And I know he's okay. probably in, as far as younger, obviously, I think probably anywhere from 25, 35 is probably the right. age grade he's looking Great. at. Well, I appreciate that question, Armando, and I'm going to uh, be able to address some of that here. So cancer screening, as weird as this may sound, is sometimes somewhat controversial, uh, especially in certain cancers. And then you may have different competing recommendations from different societies. There's like the American Cancer Society, then there's the Radiologist Society, and then there's the Breast Cancer Foundation. And the one I generally try to go with is called the USPSTF, which is the United States Preventative Services Task Force. Um, that's the one that I think most people generally go by. But again, these are guidelines and they're constantly they're changing pretty often. Um, and we have to determine what's best for and you have to remember, um, guideline or screenings are done kind of as a public health benefit. So it's, you know, you are the individual and for you, um, you know, whatever we say, you know, may be different in terms of these guidelines, because we're looking at these from a population standpoint. So what we look at specifically are kind of four different statistical, which I'm just going to mention them, but we don't have to go into what they are, but they're sensitivity, specificity, positive predictive value and negative predictive value. 
And based on those, um, we kind of say, what is the benefit of this uh, cancer screening to the population? Uh, one thing that's important to know is cancer screening can actually cause harm, right? Screening can detect some cancers, which may have never caused medical problems to begin with. And then you treat these and then the treatments can be harmful. Then there's increased risk. Then there's increased cost of screening, which can be financial and emotional. You know, you, you're like, well, you know, I, I went to a screening and they found a spot like, you know, it stresses you out for a month or whatever until you find out that, well, it was benign or, well, you know, did the biopsy and they cut it out and, and that's it. So, um the other thing I want to mention is, uh, Nick, you know, especially in some of these longevity focused kind of groups is they're talking about whole body MRIs, you know, famously Kim Kardashian recently did one of these whole body MRIs to, uh, look for, you know, uh, we as oncologists don't generally recommend this right now because one, it's very expensive Two, we don't have the data to say that this is actually beneficial for most people. So, um, there's a lot of services that you can find these days, um, that provide this. We don't generally recommend it, but if it's something that you can afford and want to do, go ahead, you should do it, but you should know that there are risks associated with that of finding, you know, things that may look abnormal on an MRI, but could be completely benign. So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, that's a good uh, good point yeah yeah so uh, i can go into different cancer screenings right now if you'd like and sure i mean uh, like i said i mean if uh i, I think different screenings are probably like it and i'm sure they probably the, the list might be extensive but um yeah i'll get into that have... basically the most important ones that we talk okay. about which mm-hmm. so um uh so colon cancer, colorectal cancer, the guidelines have changed a little bit, but basically starting at age 45, we recommend, uh, and all again, all of these may change. This is just the general population. If you have family history or if you have, you know, anything like that, or, you know, any chance you might have a genetic condition that predisposes you to some of these, then it'll change based on that. But so colon cancer, um, which is one that we're actually seeing younger and younger patients. I think famously Chadwick Boseman, you know, Black Panther, he had, he was diagnosed at a pretty young age of, of colon cancer, I believe. So we're seeing it more and more. And so we're, and because of that, um, we're actually dropping the age at which we recommend screenings now. So we actually recommend 45. It used to be 50. There's different methods you can do. There's a stool test you can do at home, but the most common one that people do is a colonoscopy which is as long as it's normal is every 10 years. Um, there's some, and then the, the stool test at home, you know, you may have seen ads for things like Cologuard, which is every three years or so that, but yeah, age 45 is when we typically start that. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see another one that I think is pretty straightforward is lung cancer. Um, so it's recommended that people who are heavy or current or former smokers, uh, basically starting at age 50 until age 75 every year, get a what's called a low dose CAT scan of the chest to look for uh, cancer lesions. That one's um, pretty straightforward. Uh, ones that we may want to go into a little bit more detail for men, prostate cancer. Traditionally, they've done what's called the digital rectal exam, you know, the finger finger exam, as well as a blood PSA level. Um, that one is pretty controversial. I think it's historically it's led to a lot of overdiagnoses of prostate cancers, which may not Hmm. be clinically significant. You know, if you biopsy uh, everyone who has a prostate, there's a chance that you may see a very low grade prostate cancer, especially the older that they get. So, um, so the way, so it's basically a discussion that you should have with your primary care provider 
um, starting at age 55 or so about the risks and benefits of doing the PSA blood test and doing the digital rectal exam. Um, so I think basically what the society say that there's insufficient evidence for all men to get this no matter what. Um, I think a lot of doctors will err on the side of caution and will still offer the PSA test to most of their patients because, you know, you obviously don't want to miss a cancer. And if you have a screening tool available, why not use it? But you should know mm -hmm. that there are, again, some harms associated with it that could be finding a cancer, which may not be clinically significant to you. You can live with this low-grade prostate cancer until the day that you die for 30, 40 years. That's possible. Is is there a reason why? Is it just that the organ specifically produces some of those cells? Or yeah, it... so PSA, which is called prostate-specific antigen, um, that is produced. It's like a protein that's produced in the the prostate and it kind of circulates throughout the body. And so it's normally at a pretty low level. And um, if you start seeing prostate cancer, it usually is correlated with an increase in that protein floating throughout the body. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if that's, if it's something, like I said, I mean, obviously with that test specifically, there's a, uh, uh, and, and you kind of illustrated with all screenings, there's uh, some, you know, emotional issues if you find right. elevated levels, yep. but also with that test, there's probably some physical discomfort, um, yep. involved yep. with the digital yeah. exam. Or the, yeah. Uh, I mean, if exam. you do just the blood test, you know, obviously you won't have it, but in an ideal world, you would have both. Um, but oftentimes right. in the community, you know, most PCPs these days are not doing the digital rectal exam. They're doing just the blood PSA. Right. And that, and so my thought, my question is, and yeah. uh, I think we've talked about this in different topics. If you have like at least a baseline at a certain age yep. and then you track that number going forward, you sure. can see for any type of, yeah, that's exactly how know, we do increases. it. Like, right. Right. Once you have it done, you should be monitoring it every so often, whether it's every year, a couple of years, you know, it should, um, it should be done. Yeah. So that age for that one, you said was 55, you should maybe 55 to age 69. Yep. And that's, and that's starting at least with the, at least with the blood test. With the blood right? test, correct. Okay. Yep. All right. All right. Did, what, were there others that you were? Yeah. So another one that's, um, uh, relatively straightforward, which I forgot to mention is cervical cancer screenings in women. Um, mm -hmm. This screening test has actually been a very great success story in cancer screenings. Um, uh, cervical cancer used to be pretty um, deadly in women for a long time until the advent of the pap smear came along, um, which basically was able to assess um, the cervix, which is a, you know where the where the uterus comes out. Um, and uh, because of that, it, we've been able to detect early cervical cancers and it's been very successful and really decrease the morbidity and mortality of it. So the recommendation for cervical cancers is um, every three years, you get a pap smear from ages 21 through 29, and then age 30 to 64, it's every three to five years. Okay. Yep. So that one is pretty straightforward as well. There's not really mm -hmm. much controversy with that one. Um, you really... It, some people will continue to do it after age 64, but there's not much benefit doing it after age, age 64 we're seeing. So if there's any controversy, mm -hmm. it's kind of the age or the frequency, but everyone, every woman should still be getting cervical cancer screenings. Gotcha. Yep. Now breast is probably, um, you know, the frequency and how often to do it is, uh, it, it just changed this year. The USPSTF has changed their recommendations. 
Um, it used to be, I believe, age 50 or 45, and then the now it's age 40, actually. Right. And USPSTF is actually doing it every other year, um, which is a change. It used to be every year starting at age 50, but now it's every other year starting at age 40 up until age 75. I think practically, um, again, it should be a discussion starting at age 40. Um, and I think what most people end up doing is unless you have a strong family history or some other risk factors, um, they'll probably do every two years until age 50. And then practically we'll probably do every year starting at age 50, if I had to guess. That's probably what's going to end up happening in, in practice. Now, I think it's interesting from what I hear, and you can please correct yeah. me, but um, obviously my, my wife uh, are the... Uh, you know, co-host of the podcast uh, was mentioned that she has that coming up and she's had her friends who are turning 40 are also um, uh, getting that test. Has the test itself changed also? Yeah, it's um, a little bit. So there's mammogram, which is the the original test, but now there's something called digital tomosynthesis, which is kind of a combination of the two where there's a, I don't know the technical differences, but yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, and then certain women who are at higher risk, if they have a BRCA mutation, a BRCA mutation, will also get MRIs done. And then mm-hmm. had some other precancerous lesions, and you may also be getting MRIs done as well. Uh, alternative okay. mammograms. Yeah. So right. now I think it's technically a, a combination of mammogram with a 3D kind of generation of something called digital tomosynthesis. So hmm. okay, it's kind of standard right. care now. Yep. Interesting. Yep. All right. Now, um, were there any other screenings you wanted to highlight? Um, I think that's it. Um, you know, we don't, a lot of these that I had today were kind of focused on, uh, uh, solid tumor cancers, but blood cancers, leukemia, lymphomas, a lot of that is symptom driven. And when you get yearly blood work with your PCP, you get what's called a CBC, a complete blood count. And that should often right. pick up a lot of these things. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mean, somewhat. I think related to that way back when I started getting regular blood done or drawn, I should say, um, I had uh, seemed at the time low white blood count. Okay. Um, And it was kind of regular through several uh, blood kind of drawn blood um, analysis. And uh, they sent me to uh, a cancer specialist. Oh, wow. Um, You know, so it was, and to talk about the thing we kind of hit on the beginning about, talk about being emotional. And this was when I was uh probably so this was about eight years ago so it's okay. my early 30s you yeah. know so getting something they see regular and then going seeing a cancer specialist thankfully yeah you know, obviously it was you know several months of waiting but then once yeah. i saw the cancer specialist he asked me some background about my you know my my you know my habits yep and he was like yeah it's probably you know it's nothing to worry about you know yep. so it's just you know it's yep. just something i guess you got to do the due diligence, but you know, exactly. it's also a little bit uh, right. uh, nerve wracking right. for a 30 year old to think about that. This is also why it's important to have a good PCP. And I'll tell you that because mm-hmm. you know, if you see one abnormal blood level and you say, not to say that your PCP was bad in this age, in the <laughs> exact scenario, but um, you know, you shouldn't just one abnormal blood level that might be slightly off shouldn't be a reason for concern right away, but maybe say, Hey, let's repeat it again in a few months or whatever. And then right. if, it's, if it continues to, like you said, you guys do a lot of this stuff on your podcast where you trend and, and you see how things right. are going over time. And so that's how we do it as well. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, so think about uh, another topic we want to get into is probably treatments. You know, yep. we kind of hit it on it earlier about how Did you want to do preventions at all. 
Prevention. Yeah. Oh, actually, that's right. Because we were talking about, uh, I guess, not lifestyle. How did we phrase it when we were talking? Uh, yeah, we did. Uh, risk, lifestyle risk factors. factors and risk factors. Yeah. Right. So, exactly. You know, there's there's a lot of different risk factors and we'll kind of go through them generally, kind of what they are. Um, factors that cause cancer, right? Number one, and this is one that we'll beat on everything, cigarette smoking. There is no positive benefit to cigarette smoking in your life. Don't do it if you started it. And, you know, it's again, it's easy for someone who's never been a cigarette smoker to say. And, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, I've had a lot of patients who are cigarette smokers. Um, It's hard. It's hard to quit. You know, there may have some emotional connection. So it's hard. It's an addictive substance, but it is associated with 13 different types of cancer. You know, there's an increased incidence of 13 different types of cancer. We only usually think of, um, uh, lung cancers, but there's a lot bladder cancer, breast cancer. Um, I don't have all 13 in front of me, but there's a lot of different associations right. with cancer, oral cancer, so, some sort of oral exactly cancer, right. I'm oral sure. cancers as well. Yep. So if you can stop smoking, you'll, you know, at least halt the risk and over time decrease that risk. So if you can do it, that would be great. Um, radiation. Um, so anyone who's had radiation at any point in their life, ionizing radiation has been associated with leukemia, breast cancer, thyroid cancer, um, UV radiation or sunlight exposure, like we were talking about. Um, that includes not just sun, but also tanning beds, uh, increase the risk of melanoma and non-melanoma skin cancers. There's different types of viruses or infectious agents, which predispose you to certain cancers. So HPV or human papilloma virus, that's the one that's often associated with cervical cancer that we now have the good screenings for the pap smear. There's some other cancers that HPV is associated with like head and neck cancer, um, penile cancer, and I think I'm probably missing some, but there's some other ones as well. Hepatitis B and liver cancer. And then there's obviously influences such as diet, alcohol, and genetic conditions. But one thing that I think we should really talk about is obesity is one that um, increases the risk of cancer. So, which is, you know, historically defined as a a BMI of greater than 30, but I know BMI is a little bit controversial. So a large waist circumference is also one way of looking at um, can increase the risk of uh, certain cancers. So specifically breast, esophageal cancer, pancreatic cancer, endometrial cancer, maybe some colorectal cancer as well. not only that, obesity will increase the risk of recurrence of cancer if you've had a type of cancer already. And it may also reduce the treatment efficacy because the treatments sometimes are weight-based and it may make the dosing somewhat um, uh, difficult. Um, you know, these are all things that you want to be as healthy as possible. Um, so uh, weight loss and bariatric surgery will reduce the risk of some cancers as well. Um, diet. There are some diet associations. Um, there's some studies that have shown that maybe a low fat diet, um, has been associated with lower risk of cancers, but it's not a causal relationship. It may just be a correlation there. Um, uh, there's also some evidence maybe that low fat diets can help with certain cancers once diagnosed, but again, it's not consistent. Uh, but one thing I think that we do pretty consistently see that there is an increased risk, um, is fast foods, processed foods, a lot of sugary drinks. What these do, it increases adiposity, it increases the weight gain. And um, there may be some effects itself of the excess, glu- excess glucose and fructose on the development of cancer. So 
um, you know, having excess sugar in your diet and, and things like that, you know, are probably not good for the risk of cancer. Yeah. I know we did a episode recently about sugar's role in cancer risk. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was generally speaking that it was like, it not, you know, sugar doesn't necessarily from, you know, the limited studies they've done exactly feed cancer, but the excess sugar, just how you put it, uh, right. basically leads to conditions typically like, you know, type two diabetes and or obesity. And yep. then that usually increases your chances of cancer and or it reduces the, the treatment methods or the treatment efficacy. Yep. Um, yeah, exactly right. Um, that's, that's, you know, um, we can get into when we get into treatments about diet and things like that, but yes. So uh, I agree with all, all your points there. Um, uh, I did want to bring up just really quick before we move on, um, uh, supplements and if there's any supplements that might be advantage for, for, uh, reducing cancers or helping treat cancers, you know, there's been a lot of different studies. None of them have been very consistent, but if, if you want to do some, some studies, you know, look up on your own, like I think there's in lung cancer and some, I think it was beta carotene supplements seem to decrease the risk of lung cancer. But again, there's nothing definitive that we've found, but one that people are often, you know, kind of worried about is testosterone supplements and the risk of prostate cancer. Um, I think there's really, as far as we can tell, there's been no definitive association with the increased risk of prostate cancer. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of, you know, I think one that people are a lot of worried about, like, well, does it, you may have a reason that you need testosterone supplements. You have, you know, low T and, you know, you have a lot of fatigue and, um, it, it's, it's a medical treatment to get testosterone supplementation. And, um, some people may be concerned about prostate cancer and it doesn't seem to be a very, uh, consistent risk there. Mm, okay, good. Yep. So I know we talked about, like I said, with the risk factors you just illustrated, and mm -hmm. we kind of were just saying, what about uh, treatments, um, different forms of treatments for obviously there's a variety of things. So it's yeah. a variety of cancers, I should say. So mm -hmm. it, how do the treat treatments um, vary or what yeah. are the treatments? So, um, so for low grade, uh, or for early, um, solid, what we call solid tumor cancers. So organ cancers, um, you think lung, you think breast, um, colon, uh, if it's, if it's early stage and they're small surgery alone is usually enough to get a cure. Um, sometimes if it's a little bit more advanced we do a combination of surgery and maybe some other treatments, um, historically those have been chemotherapies, but now we're getting some other treatments as well. Um, uh, the immunotherapy, which I kind of mentioned before, uh, is becoming a part of, uh, what we call either neoadjuvant, which is, you know, either chemo or some kind of systemic treatment, you know, systemic meaning through the vein that goes throughout the blood system, uh, before surgery or adjuvant, which is that same thing, but just after a surgery. Um, and if it's stage four, typically there's not much of a role for surgery in, in these kind of cancers, meaning that, you know, cancer stage is, is from one to four and each cancer type is a little bit different in terms of the staging um, and the definitions of it. But pretty consistently what stage four is, 
is that it has spread from the original location um, and to a point that's further out from the body. Um, and that's the most aggressive one. That's the one that we call metastatic cancer. Um, and one that, well, surgery is probably not going to be beneficial. And the focus is on treatment of that cancer uh, to help you live as long as possible and would be as, you know, with as few side effects as long as possible. So I was mentioning that historically we had chemotherapy and that's all we had for a long time was chemotherapy about, I think it's probably now about 10 years ago, nine, 10 years ago, we started getting the immunotherapy. So the checkpoint inhibitors, which, um, basically what happens is your cancer learn your body's first line of defense against cancer is your own immune system. Now, what happens is, is your immune uh, cells, you know, attack cancers, which may be growing or cells that are growing out of control, but sometimes those cancers can develop a cloaking mechanism against your uh, uh, immune system. And then the immunotherapy, what it does, it kind of revs up your own immune system. It, you know, removes that cloak from those cancers and allows your own immune system to attack those cells. Whereas chemotherapy is kind of like a, you know, like an all out bomb that attacks all cells, good and bad. Uh, ideally an immunotherapy attacks just those cancer cells, uh, allows your immune system to again, recognize those cells. And that's kind of been the main development. Now we're also getting, uh, more targeted treatments. So if any of your listeners ever end up unfortunately diagnosed with cancer, they should ask that they get genetic sequencing on the tumor that they had, because we have so many more targeted treatments based on the mutations in the cancer itself now than we used to before. And you should be able to target some of those mutations with some of these new drugs that we have. And that's been a, also a pretty um uh, important development in cancer treatments is this kind of idea of personalized medicine or personalized treatments based on your exact, not just type of cancer, but the genes that your cancer has. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, it, I mean, in that, and again, the genetic can be done for any form of cancers or to, as of now, are there pretty, limitations? I mean, it's becoming standard of care for pretty much all cancers. You know, if they're early stage then they may not be running it because you may never actually see a medical oncologist. But I think most medical, like if you only ever see a surgeon and you never see a medical oncologist, which is what I am, I, I give the drugs. I don't do any of the surgery. Um, for, for us, it's standard of care. It's becoming standard of care to check that genetic sequence on pretty much everyone. So, um, you know, if, if you get it, you should at least ask like, Hey, is this, is this worth it to do? Um, uh, you know, people who were in training even just 10, 15 years ago, this wasn't available then. This is definitely a newer thing. And so, um, you should definitely have it done if, if you have available, you don't have to do a full panel all the time. There can be certain mutations that are associated with the type of cancer that we're looking at, but, um, it should definitely be done in my opinion. Interesting. No, that's, that's, that's something I wasn't aware of. So it's, I'm sure in a lot of people, probably a lot yeah. of listeners weren't yep. aware of either. So, yep. um, so is there uh, any other topics in regards to treatments? I know you kind of just were doing broad categories since, but, yeah. uh, uh, so, you know, um, in terms of maybe diet during cancer, um, and, and, and what to do during cancer, um, you know, if you do end up with cancer, then, um, you know, there's a lot of people, one of the most frequent question, one of the most frequent questions I get asked is, Hey doc, like, should I change up my diet? What should I do differently? Like, 
and and my advice normally is is you want to eat a, a healthy as possible diet. I don't recommend going to an extreme of well, I used to pretty much just eat you know ice cream and cereal and you know whatever all day, and now I'm going to do a keto diet. Don't do that. That's not gonna. It's not gonna be great for you. It's too many changes at once. You know. Whether there's a benefit to a ketogenic diet or not, it's kind of controversial because you may end up with gaining weight on a keto diet sometimes, you know, depending on how, what kind of keto diet you're actually doing. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, but so what we want to do is we want you to maintain your weight. We don't want you to lose weight and, you know, keep your diet relatively similar to what you've been doing. If you want to make some changes here and there, that's great. But I'd also, you rather get calories than not get calories. So if you're getting treatments and the only thing you can eat is ice cream, it's fine. Eat the ice cream. Mm-hmm. You know? I'd rather you get something than nothing. And if you're able to tolerate, then you want to eat a healthy diet. Again, things that are higher in fiber, focusing on fruits, vegetables, lean meats, um, things like that. Things that we right. historically consider to be a, a healthy diet or I uh, guess more yeah. recently considered to be a healthy diet. Yeah, like a balanced diet. I know that and I, one of the topics we were talking about or we, we maybe uh, outlined beforehand was the myths, like uh, cancer-related, right. myths, myths related to cancer. So yeah. I, the, the the keto um, diet was something, you know, being in ketosis, is it beneficial right. to, you know, basically help right. combat cancer? Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. So I think it sounds like that there's just no – definitive answer to that yet yeah i mean if you're someone who's already doing a keto diet then it's probably fine to continue doing it you know right might be some beneficial component to it but if you're someone who's never done it before you know starting treatments for cancer and chemotherapy is probably not the right time to start a keto diet right yeah no that's good are there any other i I wouldn't say the keto diet's a myth or is there anything associated with either cancer treatments or basically developing cancer that you've heard um, you know so there people there's been a lot of time and effort trying to figure out why colon cancer is happening in younger and younger people um whether it's you know the american diet being you know you know being more toxic with a lot more processing and you know things like that Uh, i don't know I, i don't know but there is definitely younger people but one thing that is sure is low fiber diets does increase the risk of colon cancer. So people who eat like basically meat only and like maybe just like starchy potatoes, like a meat and potatoes diet, they probably have higher risk of colon cancer. Um, so having fiber and healthy fibers are probably a good point to have in your diet to reduce cancer, especially colon yeah, so, cancers. So clinical studies have sh- like shown that fiber can help combat that. I don't know if clinical studies have shown that, but there are associations with high meat diets with, um, and then there is some things with nitrates and smoked meats, increasing the risk of, um, uh, gastric cancers and stomach cancers. This is, I think seen in a lot of Asian populations it's been seen. And then one thing which is kind of interesting is, uh, in, in Turkish and, and in the Middle East, they drink a lot of very hot tea and, and coffee, very, very hot. And so they've seen an increased risk of uh, esophageal cancers in those patients. Oh, so yeah. temperature wise is the yeah, issue. Yeah, I mean, they're drinking, you know, basically boiling tea. And so I think that has uh, increased the risk of esophageal cancers. Wow, that sounds yep. terrible. 
yeah. those yeah. multiple yeah. Yeah. aspects. Because uh, yeah. I was worried when you mentioned coffee, I was going to have to stop. No, no. Immediately, so. I mean, I feel like there's every month a different study about coffee causes or doesn't cause something or helps right. prevent something. I don't know what it is about coffee, but all these uh, public health researchers are fixated on what coffee causes yeah. and cause. Well, I, I like think coffee, so I'm going to keep drinking it. There we go. That's a, the doctor says the sponsors coffee, so we yeah, can uh, we yeah. can all rest assured. But uh, I think I'm sure it's probably deal. I think I believe it's one of the most consumed, if not the most consumed, beverage like worldwide. More than um, tea, probably at this point, right? I, I mean, of course, one of the same thing. I've seen studies yeah. that say say that, and then you know, yeah. probably others ones that say tea. So it's like, yeah. uh, well, number three it, is red wine. I think. Really? Water no, I don't know. Down I the public health okay. studies of like. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, to get the is it bad? Yeah, is that like, like there is a myth right there talking about resveratrol? Yep. I'm probably not even pronouncing it correctly, but the yeah, same yeah. like red wine, right? Red wine. Uh, people, are, yeah. how about how red wine can reduce your cancer uh, chances? Of yeah, they say it's an antioxidant, but you know, um, alcohol and in, in cancer, you know, generally the advice is to limit alcohol. Um, right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I, and I think I remember from because I've heard people speak about that that they're talking about how yes, the antioxidant of resveratrol could help with things yeah. like reduce cancer risk or other probably chronic diseases, but the amount that you would have to get on a daily, like daily basis, basis yeah. Yeah, yeah, would have to be a yeah. tremendous amount. So you'd have to drink a ton of red wine, which basically counteracts with alcohol counteracts any benefits, right? Yep. Or yep. you know. Uh, that was great. So that's great info. Is there any other topics you wanted to touch on before we end today's interview? Let me see. I had some notes here. No, I think we pretty much covered everything that I was planning to to do. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's it. Okay. So usually everybody we ask uh, to come on and talk to us on the podcast. I know this was kind of a special case since you and I already have a relationship, but yeah. uh, if there was any kind of, and you might already said it already, but if there's a last piece of advice you want to give our listeners about this whole arching topic or any health topics in general, what would it be? Um, yeah, I'd say that, you know, cancer can be a scary thing, but, you know, you should be assured that there's so much research going into cancer. Um, you know, you kind of touched on it briefly before is these efforts, you know, the, the cancer moonshot, which was started under Obama and kind of continued through the Trump administration has put so much funding into cancer research. And, um, there's a lot of great developments, um, and, and there's so many good oncologists throughout this country. So, and, and even throughout the world, in all honesty. And so um, you should stay up to date on your screenings that we talked about, you know, make sure you have a good PCP who, who stays on top of all these things. And, um, you know, just know that we're, if, if you do end up with it, we have a lot of strong community of oncologists throughout this, you know, this region here and then throughout the country. Um, and we're here for you. And, and that's what I would say. Excellent. Now I know you gave it out earlier, but what is that website that they can check? Cause that does it outline yeah. the screening times? It's and called, it's called USPSTF, which is the United States, uh, services preventative task force. UST or USP? US, USP. STF. STF. Okay. All right. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes for anybody yep. um, so they can go ahead. And, and like you said, I, I think I have visited this website myself because I know Sada and I talked about this, uh, talked about it previously. Yep. So 
Um, yeah, that's a great one. It talks about outlines the age and the different screening and what yeah. goes involved in the screening, right? And that one also has not just cancer, but like all their health screenings and stuff that are recommended as well. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah. All right, Saman. Thank you so much, right. man. And I'm sure, like what I said, we'll we'll try to do this again some other time. Maybe right. if there's some other topics that Excellent. come up and you always get your uh, expertise. I want to get Absolutely. your uh, feedback on it. Thank you for having me. And I just want to say I've been a client of Nick's uh, at Tampa Strength and Elemental, Tam- Elemental Tampa, Elemental Training uh, since... March of 2021, I think. And it's been an excellent experience. If you want a great trainer, uh, either in person or virtually, I highly recommend Nick. Uh, definitely check them out. It's been one of my life's greatest experiences. And he's really helped uh, me in my life. And honestly, my family, I think I have like four family members that come to you. <laughs> That's now, right. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. So I, I really appreciate the kind words. And like you said, yeah. you guys, uh, it, it has been, it's a great uh, this relationship has been beneficial and now our listeners get the benefit also. So I'm, yeah, I'm very excited about that. Thanks, Salvan. All right. Thanks. Take care. All right, guys. Hope you liked or hope you found that conversation with Dr. Shaw informative. Um, Salvan is a very, uh, I know I have a personal relationship with him, but obviously uh, someone who is a wealth of knowledge specifically about the topic of cancer, which, you know, I, if you haven't been probably affected by cancer in one way or another, um, you probably should go play the lottery because um, I'm sure at some point yeah. in life, people are affected by it, whether it's a family, a friend, or, you know, just a colleague. So it, it's something that affects us all. And, but fortunately, as we talked about in the interview, it is becoming more treatable. Um, they're becoming, they're coming out with new treatments, um, more, uh, even more kind of specified treatments for individuals based on their genetics, uh, which I found was a very interesting t- uh, topic that Dr. Shah brought up. So, it's fascinating. Um, it's, it, it's something that, you know, I, I think a lot of people, you know, they, they kind of, they're, I'm going to call them conspiracy theorists, but the people that think like, oh, they just want to uh, keep people sick because, you know, the, the money's in the medicine or money's in the treatment. But um, when you hear somebody like Dr. Shaw talk about how they are progressing, how they are actually starting to get better treatments for this terrible disease or diseases because there are so many forms and mm-hmm. different ways that it can be affect someone's body, whether it's organs or blood or uh, in the skin, of course, like melanoma. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it, it's something that is, is just hard to get a handle on, but it seems that we are. And I think that's due to not only, you know, research and charity or charities that are, you know, like stand up to cancer is one that comes to mind. That's People are, are putting their money and effort towards trying to find cures for uh, the multiple forms of cancers that exist. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Uh, Savan Shah. If you did, please let us know if there's some sort of topic. You know, we do reach out to expertise or experts reach out to us to get on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But if there's a certain topic, whether it be some sort of disease or some sort of um, you know, I know we've talked about Ozempic somewhat on the top on the podcast. Maybe uh, we yeah. try to reach out to another medical professional about maybe getting some more details about that. Um, you know, I, I, Shannon brought up a interesting concept today about having kind of almost like a village of health experts mm-hmm. to kind of uh, round out your your 
I mean, basically your wellness profile, your wellness yeah, your treatment life, team. yeah. Yeah. So um, this is this is I think probably reaching out to individuals that can be within that that uh, that network is a great way to you know inform our listeners not only inform us but maybe get more uh, get more knowledge out to the to our listeners. Indeed. So I think uh, we're going to keep doing that, guys, along with our normal uh, our uh, I wouldn't say. Our podcasts are informative, but uh, some of the really uh, uh, interesting and fun stuff coming up. We're coming down, believe it or not, we're in the last quarter of 2023. And it's we got insane. some interesting stuff <laughs> uh, planned for you guys. So please keep tuning in. Keep giving us those rating reviews. Uh, like the pod, or excuse me, like and follow uh, the ATF podcast on Instagram. And got anything else for me tonight? No. This has been another edition of the Addicted to Fitness Podcast, and we'll check in next time. Bye. For all things Addicted to Fitness, you can check out our website, addictedtofitnesspodcast.com. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, at the ATF Podcast, and like and follow the Addicted to Fitness Podcast Facebook page. Last but not least, please give us a rating and review in the iTunes store. Thanks.